So Matthew 18, 15 through 35. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell to his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seized him, began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Welcome to Trinity Community Church. My name is Mike. Glad to be with you here this Mother's Day. So we are continuing into part two of Jesus' discussion on sin. So we've been talking about what do we as a community do about sin? So a few years back, there was a church in Topeka, Kansas. Some of you may, may know their name. There were five separate petitions taken out to designate this church a hate group, to consider them a, a hate group here in the United States. I'm talking about the, the Westboro Baptist Church. So they, sh- they, they show up in the, the news way less nowadays, but for a while they were making the news for doing stuff like protesting funerals, and they would picket and have signs that said, like, God hates you, or thank God for 9-11, because they believed that... was God's judgment on people who needed to die. And so they had a lot of pretty whacked out views, and they would express them in inappropriate ways. So if you were like me, there was part of you that kind of thought they were a joke. And there was this other part of you that was like filled with embarrassment every time you would hear them mentioned. And the reason why is because you knew that there was a whole population of people also watching the news with you. And when they would see Westboro Baptist Church and some of the behaviors that they, that they had, they weren't thinking, 
wow, that's one crazy church out of a bunch of otherwise reasonable churches, right? You know that that's, that's not what a whole bunch of people were thinking. They were thinking, that's what Christians are like. So I'd watch the news about Westboro with a, with a measure of embarrassment, just feeling like, man, that's so not representative of, of what it means to be a Christian. But, re, but Westboro sort of reinforced stereotypes about Christians, and specifically stereotypes about what it looks like for a Christian to take sin seriously. Nowadays, when we talk about taking sin seriously like we did last week and, and like we are today, our minds get populated with images of Westboro Baptist Church and their pastor Fred Phelps and the 10-gallon hat and the American flag shirt, which is stylish, by the way. I mean, it's, it looks good on him in a weird way, but still not condoning his behavior, just saying few, few people could pull that off. Anyway, so you think of people like that, or maybe we think of like narcissistic leaders who are manipulating others, and they're doing it in the, in the name of holiness. We think of, our minds sort of get populated by these sorts of images when we think about taking sin Seriously, And so because that's what our minds get populated with, we think, well, I don't want any part in that. If, that would, if, if that's what it means to take sin seriously, I don't want to do it. That's super unloving. And rightly so. We, if, that's, if that is what it means to take sin seriously, we, we shouldn't want that. Westboro did a bunch of really bad things. But when we really begin to think about it, and think about it from the perspective of Christ— Westboro did a bunch of bad things, not because they took sin seriously, but because they didn't take it seriously enough. They were willing to condemn certain sins, but they were pretty easy on themselves about self-righteousness or hate. So I think a lot of us, we, we watch groups like Westboro, we see it's unloving, and we all want to be known as loving. So for many people, what, what Westboro did, it reinforced in their minds the need for tolerance. Now, I think we, we can all be for tolerance if what we mean is we all have an attitude toward each other where we can like live together and work together in the same community and not kill each other, right? <laughs> or like actively try to suppress each other's voices. If that's what we mean by t- tolerance, then like we should all be nodding emphatically that, yes, we want that. Unfortunately, I think the the word has taken on a a different sort of meaning because people are so trying to avoid the bad kind of taking sin seriously, the pendulum is swinging in the other direction. They're calling it tolerance, but it it actually is is something much worse. So last year, I got into this spiritual conversation with a woman at Hansa, which is down the road. It's a coffee shop down the road. I was doing some reading there and struck up a conversation with somebody. We were talking about sort of faith and, and ethics, and she mentioned later on in the conversation, you know, at the end of the day, I just think that what people do, what people believe, it should just never be questioned. We should just be sort of uniformly affirming of anything anybody else does or, or thinks, as long as it's not really hurting somebody. And the reason why is because she thought that to do that would be unloving. And so I told her, like, hey, I don't know about other people, and I don't want to speak for them, but I know that, for me at least— if you thought something I was doing was wrong, or if you thought I believed something stupid, I hope you would be loving enough to tell me. And her reaction almost startled me because it was, it was like so emphatic where she like gasped and said, oh my goodness, I would never do that, right? We had some very different ideas of what it meant to be loving. 
So for her, it was horrifying to think that she would ever call out bad behavior in me or tell me that something I believed was, was like a falsehood. She would never do that because it didn't seem tolerant to her. So we sort of spent a few minutes just kind of talking about that, and I tried to uncover with her maybe a little bit of, of why she felt horrified. And essentially the reason why was because she had no category for how someone could take sin seriously and still be humble, welcoming, loving. I imagine that her mind was populated with Westboro Church or the Nazis or something else. Like, I don't really know. But, but here's the gist of what I said in reply. I was not this eloquent about it. So just know that ahead of, of, of time. I was not this eloquent. I was processing verbally. But basically what I ended up trying to say is that addressing faults isn't always unloving. It can be done in really unloving ways, but it isn't unloving by nature. In fact, sometimes we address each other's faults not in spite of love, but because of it. So how does that actually work? Well, good news. That's the topic of today's sermon. (laughs) How does that actually work? How does a church take sin seriously and do it lovingly? So last week we learned what kind of community takes sin seriously. So in Matthew 18, 12, Jesus tells this really brief parable of this lost sheep, and he describes his disciples, so those of us who are following Jesus, he describes us as shepherds who like go searching over mountainous mountainous terrain for these lost sheep. We are so eager to find them and draw them back into the fold that we, we, we seek them in the most inconvenient of ways, the most desperate of ways. Jesus is teaching us to be the kind of church that can't wait to celebrate the return of lost sheep. Not because we're judgy or or holier than thou, but because we know that with Christ is life, and we want to experience that life together and never see somebody miss out on the kingdom. Jesus says that God doesn't desire anyone to perish. He doesn't want anyone to walk away, to choose the way of hell over the way of the kingdom, and essentially we are called to represent that heart Toward sinners. We are called to represent the heart of God for sinners. That's kind of the kind of community we are meant to be. And so today we learn how to be that kind of community. And in a weird way, it's basically by being what we are. The church is meant to be a community that represents God's heart. We seek sinners by representing God's heart, by doing the things that, that God would urge us toward. So the church addresses sin by embodying God's heart for sinners. And we're going to see two practices that a church like ours uses to address sin by embodying God's heart. Two practices. But before I get to those, where am I getting this idea that the church embodies God's heart? Let's talk about that first, and then we'll work into the the two practices. So skip ahead with me to verses 18 to 20. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So these are verses that are often taken out of context. So you may have encountered this idea in the past. I've, I've had friends that have said to me, I, it's not important to me to be a part of a local congregation, like a larger body of believers, because wherever two or three are gathered, there Jesus is with us. So anytime I get coffee with a Christian friend, I'm at church, right? 
And, and I think that that's probably a wrong-headed way of reading this passage because of context. Context is everything. This is literally a passage about how those two or three people are assumed to be part of a larger congregation. So it's easy to take this passage the wrong way if you take it out of context. But So what, what, what do they mean in the context? Basically, they explain how the church is empowered to represent God's heart. The reason why is because when the church is doing what it's supposed to do, and that's really important, when the church is doing what it's supposed to do, God will use his people to make his will known in the world. So look at this. Whatever you bind on earth, so whatever thing or action you bind on earth, not a person, this is their, their behavior, whatever action you bind on earth, it will be bound in heaven. In other words, if we are faithful to the way of Jesus, if we're going to start to, to if we're, as we're following Jesus, we're going to start to notice that some of us who have committed our lives to Christ are doing things that are not in keeping with the way of Jesus. Some of us in our midst will even be doing those things unrepentantly, habitually. And so as we notice those things, if we're silent about it or tolerant of it, those behaviors are going to slowly coax us off the way of Jesus. They'll make us apathetic to his kingdom, make us apathetic to the world as it should be. They will wreck relationships. And so it becomes our responsibility to say, this is God's will for that behavior. To represent the heart of God and to say, that is not according to the way of the kingdom. We name it for what it is. And the image Jesus uses here of like, is like tying it or binding it. It's almost like the, the idea of a quarantine. Like we're quarantining a behavior and identifying it for, for what it is, which is something that is not in keeping with the way of Jesus. And so when the church is acting according to God's will, whatever they're binding on earth should reflect what is bound in heaven. In other words, the church should be speaking God's evaluation of these different behaviors. We should reflect the will of God. We should be speaking his heart. And so we're, we're revealing his thoughts on something. So when members of the community approach us, and they've been praying, and they've been thinking deeply, and they say like, hey, brother, sister, you know, you did this thing the other day, and it was really hurtful, and, you know, I just wanted to approach you because I love you, and I'm eager to see you repent for that. We should be really slow to write that off. Because it may be the voice of God speaking into our life. In the same way, when two or more gather in Jesus' name, so in the context, these folks are probably coming together to pray for the lost sheep, to pray for the person who's gone wayward. He says that God is listening. He's not making a guarantee for every individual case, but he is saying that when the church prays along those lines, we're praying according to God's will, and, and many, many times God will answer according to those prayers. So I have known so many people over my life who have had friends walk away from Jesus. I've known many parents who have watched their kids walk away from Jesus, and sometimes the prayers that go after those people last for decades. And I've seen people come back. God is operating through the prayers of his people because God loves to celebrate the return of lost sheep. And so when the church gathers to plead for someone's salvation, they are revealing his heart 
And so now it should be obvious, but, but this thing where the people of God reveal his heart, for this to be the, the case, we've got to be digging into prayer. We've got to be leaning into each other. We've got to be, like, consuming scripture like it is a can of Pringles. Like, we've got to be, like, these sort of, right, just laying into the Spirit. We've got to be keeping in step with the Spirit in order to really discern the truth in a healthy way. The church only operates this way when we are operating according to the Spirit and pursuing him through prayer, Scripture, and each other. Otherwise, we're going to do some, some damage because this is dangerous business. The weight of this, like when we speak into each other's lives, we need to do it with God's agenda and not our own. When we speak into each other's lives, we've got to do it with God's agenda and not our own because God expects us to be revealing his heart. It's part of why we are here together as a community. I think for many of this, like, this is a weighty enough responsibility that we'd rather just not take any part in it. Right? Like, this is an intense, active kind of practice, and so we would rather just be passive and coast rather than, than, than take the risk of, of participating. And so that's why we have to have grace for each other, speak humbly, speak lovingly. We need grace. That's why Jesus assures us that he is with us in verse 20. So as the church tries to live out this reality, we do it with Jesus working among us. And so we, we're trusting him to give us grace even when we fail. But we can't do it if, we're, if we're, we aren't being the kind of community that we talked about last week. So last week we talked about how, like long before Jesus ever arrives at this actual process of how to call out sin, he describes what kind of community is poised to do it. It's a community of people who have the humility of children. They recognize their need. They're a community of people who are accommodating, meaning that they sort of posture themselves in this way where they're trying to make it as easy as possible for the others in the community to follow Jesus. We're sort of carrying each other's burdens. And then finally, we're a self-reflective community, critical of ourselves long before we're critical of others. That we can't call someone to repentance unless we're living by repentance. And so for us to, to take part in this kind of a practice, we've got to be that kind of community, each of us as individuals. And we have Jesus to rely on, and he promises that he is with us. So that's why the church is empowered to address sin, because God has called his people to reveal his heart. And so there, there's more I could say. I hope I have caveated what I've just said enough. I didn't want it to die the death of a thousand qualifications either, but... It's a concept that's kind of unfamiliar to some of us, I imagine. So don't be afraid to ask questions of myself or, or the other elders or, or mature believers around you. Let's dialogue, but for now, we'll, we'll leave it at that. The church is meant to reveal God's heart toward sinners. And so we, we need to make it known when the heart of God is grieved or angered by a particular behavior. So how do we do that? By two practices, by pursuing unrepentant sinners and forgiving repentant ones. So if you're here last week, this is basically expanding the last point of last week's sermon. So the final quality of the kind of community that takes sin seriously is that we're a pursuing community, and now Jesus is laying out this process so that we can actually do that, so we can really be a pursuing community. So the church embodies God's heart towards sinners by pursuing them. Verses 15 to 17. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. 
If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, then take two or one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, then tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, then let him be to you as a Gentile and as a tax collector. So this is the process that Jesus puts in place for his people to pursue lost sheep. This is something that all of us take part in. Jesus doesn't specify that this is just for the leadership of a church. This is something that all of us together are, are, are united in. And to flesh it out a little bit more, this doesn't refer to com- like calling out someone who's already battling their sin. Right? If someone is like ardently repentant and working on it in community, that's not the time to come to them and be like, I'd like to make you aware of this thing that you've been working on for the past three months. Like, he knows, right? So it's not talking about that particular person. Instead, the, the, the folks that this passage have, have in, has in mind are the unrepentant sinner and the unaware sinner. The unrepentant sinner and the unaware sinner. The unrepentant sinner is the one who is consistently, habitually sinning, making a habit of it, needs to be called back. The unaware sinner is the one who maybe hurt someone and didn't apologize or is at fault and doesn't know it. I think those are the two sorts of people that we're talking about. This isn't a process that we initiate for someone who's like already working on it in community. So this is the process Jesus puts in place. And in typical Jesus form, it's pretty countercultural basically from step one. So um, last summer, the Atlantic ran an article about gossip. And uh, the, the argument of the article is essentially that gossip is good for you. Guys, gossip is good for you, right? So basically, it was reporting on like a number of studies that had been done on gossip, and it was just one of those like classic examples of, and I like a lot that The Atlantic does, but this was just like a classic example of a journalist just applying the bare minimum amount of critical reasoning to the data. Like just trying to skate away, doing as little as possible to th- actually think. So essentially what they did is they, they said, hey, look, here's what gossip does. Gossip is good for us because when we hear it, we feel good. We feel awesome when we gossip. We become prouder of ourselves. We learn behaviors that we start to avoid so we can become, we can stay in the community so it reinforces our peer group. And also, when you're being gossiped about, eventually you start to know that you're kind of left out, and so you change your behavior. See, guys? The Bible's wrong. So I know I'm being sarcastic. I'm being very uncharitable with this. But I read this, and it was like, seriously, gossip is good because it turns us into a self-satisfied clique? Like, we have got to have higher standards than this. How insecure are we as a culture that we are, like, satisfied with this data or the interpretation of the data? This is it's wild to me. So anyway, I'm sorry I'm being uncharitable. Gossip might feel good, but it cle- like, self-evidently isn't good. Clearly. Gossip is indifferent to the person being gossiped about. Gossip takes a problem from a person's life, and it makes it about us. So we end up looking for someone's issues and using those issues to enhance our lives, to entertain us, basically. Gossip is is gravely destructive. And yet, this is typically how we address sin in the church. One commentator on, on this passage, he lamented that the, the saddest thing is that the offender 
is usually the last one to know about their offense in the congregation. Word gets around fast. And mostly passive-aggressively. And so Jesus turns that on its head. Step one of the process is bringing up the issue one-on-one with the offender. When we gossip, other people's faults become a cause for joy. When we follow the way of Jesus, they become a cause for compassion. And that's what's so awesome about this process. It seeks unity before division. Division is the absolute last resort in the process. It's an active process, not a passive-aggressive process. The whole thing is postured toward grace. This thing isn't built to destroy the offender, but to restore him. It's not meant to destroy the offender or to feel superior or to try to leverage power or to vent our anger or to guard our social territory. The steps of this process from beginning to end are here to restore lost sheep to God. We aren't going on a witch hunt. We're seeking lost sheep. And so we don't go blabbing about somebody's issues. We might seek wisdom about whether or not we're perceiving the situation accurately, and that's important in most cases. But aside from that, when you notice somebody is in sin, you approach them before you approach anybody else. If it's not somebody else's problem, don't make it their problem. Instead, we actively and intentionally approach people to say, brother, sister, this was wrong. Come back to the way of Jesus. Now, before we actually get into the process itself, here's one caveat. This process does not exist to replace legal action, okay? So there are times where you need to call the authorities, right? There are times where you need to get you and yours out of harm's way. And this process isn't here to replace that. It isn't here to replace a 911 call. This is about healing the hurt of sin within a community. This is about keeping people on the way of Jesus. This is about restoring lost sheep. But that doesn't mean that that we do so at the risk of the vulnerable among us or yourself in terms of physical harm. In fact, there, there are ways to involve the state and still seek the restoration of, of the person who, who's guilty of that more extreme sin. There are ways to still seek their restoration even as you do what you need to do. And you can always seek further wisdom on that. But that's a quick caveat that I felt I needed to add. So on to the process. This is a process that's also referenced in our Constitution and bylaws as a church. If, if you're a member, I encourage you to look at that. It's something that we're committed to. And I also believe it's referenced in the Members' Covenant So here's how the process works. This is a a process any follower of Jesus is supposed to take part in. Basically, here's how it goes. When you notice someone is in unrepentant sin, you approach them alone. And if they admit to their faults, repent, then it says you've gained your brother. In other words, you've crossed that mountainous terrain, you have found the lost sheep, and you've brought them back into the fold. Awesome. Now, if they don't repent, then the next step is to bring two or three people along who have also observed the behavior and, and all of you together just say, hey, this is seriously serious. We love you. We're worried about you. Come back to the way of Jesus. Come back to the way of life. And if they still refuse, then a larger group of people is informed. So the church is informed. 
And they're invited to basically plead with the offender to repent and change and be restored. And this step, essentially what's happening with the step where you involve the whole church, you're changing the whole social fabric the offender lives in. So that it it becomes like really awkward, right? In a good way, in a healthy way. Not so that it becomes hostile, but basically everywhere he goes, the people in his social network within the church are now relating to him in order to urge him toward repentance. So it changes the social fabric in a really extreme way. It's basically healthy peer pressure. That's what this step is, is changing the peer pressure around a person towards something healthy and loving. And if they still won't repent... Then once again, the way of relating to them is changed, but changed in a different way. You begin to relate to them essentially as an unbeliever, as somebody who is not part of the community. They have functionally rejected the way of Jesus. And so that doesn't mean we shun them or something, but we begin to relate to them less on the level of, please come back to what you are, and we start relating to them on the level of, please become what you aren't. Right? In some cases, they, they... Depending on the sin, if it's of a violent nature or an abusive nature, they may not be welcome in our midst, not Sunday gathering. That's how we would implement that here at Trinity, depending on the nature of the behavior. So this is a few things that I want to point out. First, it checks our assumptions as the people who are, who are bringing up the concern. So not only is each step like an incentive for the offender to change, it also adds one more group of people who have to ask us hard questions to make sure that we are perceiving things in the right way and they're there to hopefully correct us if we're bringing up something that isn't actually an issue or if we don't have all the information. So it has this built-in fail-safe. Second, the process unites us with the sorrow of God toward the unrepentant. So we talked about how, a ch- how the church is empowered to do this because we're here to em- embody the heart of God. So what does this process reveal about God's heart? I think it reveals verse 14, right? That it is not the desire of my Father in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So it's like as we pursue unrepentant sinners, we become this living symbol of the hand of God on that person, and each step of the process is a finger being pried off. It unites us with the sorrow of God as someone walks away from the way of Jesus. Third, it brings us together for growth. So one of our guiding principles as a church is that we're together for growth. We desire to help each other toward following Jesus and delighting in him more. And part of that is is making each other aware of sin and then following up to, to help each other through that process to walk through wholeness and holiness. So being together for growth, it doesn't just mean that we make each other aware of sin. We then link arms and we struggle together through the process of restoration. And this process, this process that Jesus rolls out brings us together for that purpose. Fourth, it measures our response. So basically what I'm trying to say with this one is the process escalates with the offender's stubbornness. So that first interaction when it's just you and them, that can be pretty casual, right? I've been on the receiving end of that conversation many a time, right? It's basically, let's sit down for coffee. Mike, you hurt me in this way. Dude, I'm so sorry. Hug. Work on healing. That's the conversation, right? It can be really, really casual. When someone has has hurt you, you can approach them, just make them aware. And in most cases, they will repent and you'll restore and there will be healing, right? So 
it's only as somebody is made aware of sin in their life and still won't repent that the process begins to escalate. So now it's two or more. It's like, dude, we're really worried about you. Please change. And then over a time of refusing, refusing, refusing from them, the whole church is involved. And so the, the process sort of measures our response to sin. It's proportionate to a person's willingness to repent. If someone's willing to repent, this thing is a cup of coffee. If they're not willing to repent, it gets intense and hard. But now it brings us to the next thing. Let's assume they repent. So what happens then? What happens not when someone refuses to repent, but when they do? Well, just as the church is called to reveal God's heart by pursuing unrepentant sinners, we're called to reveal God's heart by forgiving repentant ones. So verses 21 to 35. Then Peter came up to Jesus and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I don't say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he couldn't pay, his master ordered him to be sold. His wife and children, all they had, and payment to be made. So the servant, he fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I'll pay you everything. And out of pity, out of compassion for him, The master of that servant released him and forgave him the whole debt. But when that servant, that same servant, went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, I'll pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then the master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had had mercy on you? In anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So Peter has been hanging out with Jesus for a while, right? And he's been a part of this whole conversation about sin, and he's, he's sensing that, okay, yeah, so we're going to posture ourselves toward restoration. And in fact, like we're, what, 11 chapters past the Sermon on the Mount? Peter's also been, been praying the Lord's Prayer possibly every day. Every day, Father, forgive me my trespasses as I forgive those who trespass against me. And so he knows that forgiveness is important to Jesus, but he's got to be thinking, like, how many times, though, do we forgive somebody? Because this could get really exhausting. So he approaches Jesus and says, like, let's make this concrete, right? I'm a numbers man. Are we talking, like, seven times? Which, by the way, can you imagine forgiving somebody for a repeat offense seven times? Like, seven times forgiving and then working toward restoration, and then it happens again, and then just over and over. It is exhausting. It's hugely exhausting. So he, he says, like, seven, that sounds extreme, right? And Jesus says, you'd be closer to the truth if you multiply it by 11. When we forgive someone, it means that we are not going to allow the offense to dictate the terms of the relationship going forward. And Jesus says that his disciples will never stop doing that. So he's, Jesus, by the way, Jesus isn't like specifically saying, oh, 77 times is actually the number. So once you get there, cut him off. 
the idea is that it's just like, no, you, you just keep on doing it and doing it and doing it, right? So what is it that we're doing? Well, what we're doing is we're not allowing the offense, the sin, to dictate the terms of our relationship. Forgiveness isn't this one-off thing. It's a process. And forgiveness doesn't mean everything just has to go back to normal. For most sins, it, it, it does, actually, though. Like, for most sins, you restore, heal quickly, and then it's over. But for the ones that are more extreme, we'll need to map out a process, rebuild trust. But even then, you aren't letting the offense have the final word. Forgiveness has the final word. Forgiveness is now setting the agenda for the relationship. Or even as you're mapping out a process for restoration, you're doing so because restoration is the goal. Forgiveness now is setting the agenda, not the offense. If the offense was setting the agenda, we'd be cutting each other off all over the place. Instead, forgiveness sets the agenda. We're not going to hold the offense against them. We're going to do what needs to take place so that you and I are good. Jesus says that we can never reject someone's apology. We can never withhold forgiveness to those who are repentant. And the reason why we can't is because the Father won't. So Jesus tells this parable about a servant who owes a sum of money to his master. And the amount that Jesus picks is just comically large. So a talent is 6,000 days wages. So 10,000 talents, like Jesus is basically saying, so there was a servant who owed his master a bazillion dollars, right? Like, so it's just this comically large number. Like, the idea is that there's no way this guy is ever, ever going to repay what he owes. And yet the master forgives him this debt, this incredible debt. He chooses not to hold the debt against him, but instead he is going to eat the cost so that the relationship can be restored But then there's a sad twist. The servant goes out and he encounters another servant who owes him 100 denarii, which is still like a fair amount of money, but it's not even a whole year's wages. Not even a whole year's wages. And he refuses to forgive him. So what is that servant doing? What he's doing is he's applying a different standard to others than he accepted for himself. He wants the gifts of the master, but he doesn't want to follow the way of the master. He's taking something his master calls forgivable, and he's calling it unforgivable. When we become part of the church, we become a part of this community that God uses to reveal his heart. And when someone wrongs us, they don't just wrong us. They wrong the Father. And when we refuse to forgive someone who has wronged us, We are calling unforgivable what the Father has emphatically, by the blood of Christ, called forgivable. We are acting as though we have just slightly higher standards than God. And Jesus has this sobering line at the end where he says that God is going to hold us to the standard we apply to ourselves. We're called to reveal God's heart. And sometimes doing that is going to lead us down a path of pain. And we, like the master, will have to eat the cost of forgiveness. We will have to say no to the bitterness. We will have to say no to the rage. We will have to say no to letting that sin dictate the terms of the relationship. Love isn't easy. It is very costly. Most of all, when we have to forgive, it's hard to forgive. 
It's hard to follow up forgiveness by working toward restoration. It takes time, but it is the way of Jesus, and forgiveness was costly to him as well. God would not let sin have the final word with us. God would not let our sin dictate the terms of the relationship. And in order to forgive us, Jesus endured the cross and ate the cost of the debt that we owed so we could go scot-free. And so all of us who call ourselves disciples of the one who gave everything for forgiveness must be willing to do the same. And we will not be able to do it without heavy reliance on the Spirit to help us. We can't do it alone. We do it together as a community. But it is the way of Jesus. And for, for those of you who are wronged in serious ways, it is the path that you have to walk to keep in step with Jesus. And I say that knowing that in my life, I've had to forgive very little. So I don't stand here pretending to relate to you in the deepest parts of your pain. I know it's beyond what I can imagine from where I stand right now in life. And I don't want to minimize that at all. That is why I'm here and why we as the community of the church are here to support you as you walk toward obeying Jesus in this. But if you have been wronged, this is the path ahead of you. But I can tell you that if you choose to follow this path of forgiveness, there will be an intimacy that you experience with the Lord that will be rare. Because you will have to relate to him in this. That forgiveness is costly. So stay on the path. We forgive because we are forgiven. And it's on that note that I want to end, just remembering the grace of God for us and coming to him for fresh mercy. Like we can't forget that this whole process begins with us becoming humbled as children and coming to Jesus for, for our needs. And so it's on that note that I want to end. Let's pray. I'll, I'll welcome the worship team to come up. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your forgiveness of us in the cross. We thank you that you have done everything necessary to restore the relationship with the Father. You have forgiven us, Jesus, not because you don't take sin seriously, but because you do. And it costs a great deal to, to forgive us. And so, Lord, I pray that we would embody your heart towards sin. That we would actively seek to have sin eradicated from our lives, not through judgment, not through harm, not through gossip, but by the way of grace, through intentional pursuit of each other in community. I pray that you would make us a holy congregation. We love you, Jesus, and we want to be like you. Amen.